Hi there, misfits. I'm Kate. And I'm Kale. Welcome to Horrorwood. before we get into this is shout out Nick Davio uh, who created that music that you just heard he's we list him on all of our show notes so like all of his infos there his Instagram his website all of that it's nicholasdavio.com um, but it's been a while since we gave him a shout out and I just want to say hey Nick you're super talented and awesome so thank you for doing that and I also love following you Nick because you always have like great music updates that you're doing and I think they're fascinating so kudos to you so everyone should go follow him for sure all right and his uh all of his info is in our show notes so just scroll down wherever you're listening and you'll see his stuff there um also I have to tell everyone that Kale is the best aunt Kale because she surprised little Frankie with the cutest toys. And it was so delightful to find that in the mail. One of them was like a little Tiffany's blue purse, like a stuffed purse that said Sniffany and Company. <laughs> Frankie loved it. There was also a little doggy remote control that Frankie often uses as a pillow. And maybe the most amazing item in there was a a Dolly Parton. So Dolly Parton has a line of dog toys called Doggy Parton. And I'm obsessed. (laughs) I know. I know. And one of them is a microphone with like a rope attached to it, like a tug toy. And Frankie loses her shit over that thing. She goes insane. So I'm sorry that all of you don't have Kale as your friend who can send you fun dog toys. Thank Um, you. But no, thank you. I wish that the little gift, um, what are they, note? Oh, the gift had, receipts. Yeah. Had come in there because my favorite one was when I, I, I wrote one for each little toy. And my favorite one was what I wrote for the darn microphone. Like It was, it was cute. so good. It was like, here's to the newest misfit. Welcome to Horrorwood. You scre- I mean, at least you yeah. screenshotted them yeah. so I could see them. But yeah, that sucked that Amazon left those out. Yeah. Oh, well. All right. So today's case is a pretty tough one and sad one actually it's one that a lot of people have heard of but maybe don't know like a bunch of details but we are talking about rebecca schaefer oh i didn't tell kale what we were doing i remember i mean was that was it 90 early 90s 89 89 89 okay i remember my dad talking about it yeah yeah it um it's a case that is still brought up. I mean, people still remember her and because she was so young. And and we'll get into it, but some things came out of out of the whole experience that well, we'll we'll talk about it. Rebecca Lucille Schaefer was born on November 6, 1967 in Eugene, Oregon. She grew up in Portland, um, though, and was the only child of Dr. Benson Schaefer, a child psychologist. And Dana Schaefer, I think it's pronounced Dana, it's spelled D-A-N-N-A, but I think it's Dana. Uh, Hopefully I'm getting that correct. Uh, And she was a writer and an instructor at Portland Community College. As a child, she was described as curious and spirited. She loved being outdoors, and one of her favorite things to do was go horseback riding. She was also super smart. She was an honor student and served on her school's student council, and she had an artistic side. She loved writing poetry. Basically, she was what you would call a well-rounded kid. She had a lot going on for her at a young age. She also grew up in the Jewish faith, which was something that was really important to her. In fact, she'd always wanted to become a rabbi. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. Rebecca had always been a cute kid. I'll see if I can post pictures of her as a child. She's adorable. She's a very, I mean, she was a very pretty, she's, she's kind of got the wispy blonde hair, right? Do I have no, right? no. She oh. had brown curly hair. Oh, oh gosh. 
I'll post no, pictures. Of, okay. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of Rebecca um, De Mornay. Very different people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I know that one. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. If I can post the pictures of her as a kid, she has like the cutest little round face. And like I said, curly brown hair. She's just a little cutie. Um, as she got a little older, she thought, maybe I'll give modeling a try. And in 1982, so she would have been about 14, she signed with a local talent agent. At the time, she was in her junior year at Lincoln High School. And for the next two years, she got jobs as a print model and catalogs for department stores, as well as some TV commercial gigs. So she wasn't doing okay. too bad for herself. And she's still in Oregon at this point. Yes. Okay. Uh, shows that she had ambition and was a hard worker. And because she proved to be so driven and responsible, in August of 1984, at the age of 16, Rebecca's parents gave her permission to move to New York City on her own to pursue a career in modeling and acting while attending the professional children's school. Wow. So they didn't even go with her. Like most, no. you know, a lot of a lot of families will do where where one parent will go with a child like actor or model or whatever and then and then the other parent will stay and then from everything that I could that I read they just let her go I mean her dad had his practice and her mom was a writer and and was a, an instructor at that college so you know they had their things 16 then I th I feel like everybody thought it, it was it was just a different time era, and so sixteen felt like it was close enough to eighteen where you could be on your own. Where now at sixteen feels so young. Like I'm like, I don't know. I still feel like even then it felt young. I mean, this is the eighties. You know, it wasn't like when people got married at like thirteen. <laughs> it was well, just like, okay. you know. But anyway, because yeah, she was just they knew she was a responsible kid. Okay, yeah. and. So she starts going to the Professional Children's School in Manhattan, which is a college prep school that works with child performers in grades 6 through 12. And I mean, a bunch of people have, like, famous have come out of that. And so it's possible that there were people there that were keeping an eye on her if, if she's in that school. And yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, when interviewed for her hometown newspaper in Portland, Rebecca said of her cross-country move, from my standpoint, it seemed very natural, but I know my parents went through hell. And I just, oh. I mean, I feel like that's the thing with her. She was just really self-assured. She knew what she wanted and she felt comfortable. And obviously that's going to be hard for parents. And especially when it's your only child to be like, okay, you're going to go all the way across the country. It's scary. Even as an adult, when I'm sure you, when you moved and when I moved, I'm, I went from one coast to another. My, my mom still checks in on me. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you ever stop parenting even right. when your kid is an adult. Um, but you know, props to them—they let her go, and she went for it. Call it her dream. Soon after she arrived in New York City, she signed with Elite Model Management, which is a really prestigious modeling agency. And not long after, in 1985, she booked a small role on One Life to Live, and that was her first like professional acting gig. She struggled to find modeling jobs, though, and she felt that her height of 5'7 was too short to be a fashion model. That's how tall I am. And I, I, I too, feel it's too short for me to be a fashion model. And the fact that I just don't fit that role at all. But other <laughs> than that. Other than that. So in 85, she moved to Japan because she felt maybe her height wouldn't be such an issue there. And she felt she could get more work there. Mind you, she was only around 17 at this time. Wow. And she just like up and moved to Japan. Uh, but she really knew what she wanted. She went after yeah. it. Unfortunately, though, Japan didn't really work out. She still struggled to find modeling work. And so she moved back to New York. That's when her agent suggested she focus more on acting rather than modeling. And this is when things really started picking up for Rebecca. She began landing small roles, one in the Steven Spielberg series Amazing Stories and another in the film Radio Days, directed by Woody Allen. So very early on oh. in her career, she's catching the eye of some big names. Big names. Yeah, for sure. Then she received a phone call that so many actors dream of. Her agent called her to tell her that producers in Hollywood were interested in her for a role in a new sitcom. So Rebecca flew to L.A. for a screen test and won the role of Patty Russell, a free-spirited teenager who moves in with her older sister on the CBS show My Sister Sam. 
Rebecca starred opposite Pam Dauber of Mork and Mindy fame. And while they were working on the show, Pam and Rebecca actually lived together, along with Pam's boyfriend and future husband, actor Mark Harmon. I think Pam really did see Rebecca as sort of a younger sister, because not only did they play sisters on TV, but Pam had had a younger sister that had passed away just a few years prior Mm -hmm. um, from a heart condition. And I think living with Rebecca just kind of reminded her of that sisterly bond. And Pam said, quote, having another young girl in the house was something I was very comfortable with. It was good for us. Oh, that is so really sentimental and very sweet. Yeah, yeah. My sister Sam was a hit right out of the gate and made Rebecca a star on the rise. She even landed the March 1987 cover of Seventeen magazine. But even with her growing fame and success, Rebecca remained humble and down to earth. When you make in the 80s and 90s, when you make the cover of Seventeen. Oh, Seventeen was such a huge deal. Huge deal. And I remember back then and I I remember um, Chrissy and Nikki Taylor and like I collected them. Yeah. I I coveted them. I got one subscription uh, because it was like a fundraiser for school. Oh, okay, yeah. And so I got the one subscription and I wanted one so bad after that, but, you know, money or whatnot. And so I remember then people would, they would look at theirs and then I would be able to look at it afterwards. And it was a huge deal. So I just feel like something like that, like as a young girl, if you get that cover, that's the first thing I did. I wanted to know who was on the cover. So I would go and read like whoever they were. And it got a bunch of names out there. I remember, so my sister had a subscription and I would go and steal hers because <laughs> like I was, you know, I was the youngest and it made me feel like older and I was, yeah, it was oh, like yeah, a cool yeah. thing. Everyone that knew Rebecca said she was just so natural, so kind. She lived a pretty quiet life. A former agent of hers, Sue Cameron, said that Rebecca liked to stay home and read and play with her cat. That's like, that was her life. She also said that Rebecca liked classical music. She liked going to the Hollywood Bowl, which is a concert venue in L.A. She was very healthy, so she would work out. She'd go for walks. She never went to Hollywood parties. And maybe why it worked for her moving to New York and and Japan on her own is she really sounds like an old soul. I mean, she listened to classical music. She had a cat. She, you know, (laughs) these things that kind of like are stereotypical, these old soul type behaviors or characteristics. Yeah, maybe. So maybe she just was, you know, a very mature person. She definitely was. And... I'm sure we can think of plenty of examples of young child stars who got wrapped up in the fame and the temptations of Hollywood. But Rebecca was the opposite. She was just a good kid with a lot of talent and drive. Ginny O'Hara, who was her co-star on My Sister Sam, said that Rebecca was just a regular teen who'd often ask her and Pam Dauber advice on like this or that or ask about men and dating. And she said Rebecca was always just herself. There was nothing phony about her. She even became the first babysitter Jenny hired for her daughter, Sophie. And Jenny said Rebecca was just amazing, trustworthy. And when she saw Rebecca with Sophie, it made her think what a great mom Rebecca, what a great mom Rebecca would be. As Rebecca's popularity grew, so did the amount of fan mail she received. And Rebecca, being the kind hearted, generous person she was, would respond to the fan mail herself. Oh, that's really huge. I feel yeah. like. Because think about the amount of time that takes. Yeah. I, okay. Confession. Uh, I I wrote many letters to many people. Christian Slater being the first one, I believe. Amazing. This is my first big crush. But I never received a letter back. I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, so that is really, it's admirable. And it's also, again, time consuming, right? Like the, yeah. for some people, probably like a second job because of how much fan mail that they actually get. Judy Crown, who was a hairstylist on My Sister Sam, advised Rebecca not to respond to the mail. She told her, look, just don't respond. I don't have a good feeling about it. People sometimes are crazy. I think you should just ignore it. But that just wasn't that just wasn't Rebecca's nature. She felt the right thing to do was to respond to her fans. And one person she responded to was a young man by the name of Robert John Bardo. Oh, my tummy just did an ick factor. Yeah. I heard three names and it just... 
Exactly. We just talked about this in the last episode. Yep. Three names, three names. and you're a serial killer. <laughs> or maybe not a serial, but you're a murderer for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Robert John Bardo, born in 1970, was the youngest of seven children. When he was a kid, his family moved around a lot, but they eventually settled in Tucson, Arizona in 1983 when Robert was 13. Unfortunately, mental illness ran in his family, and he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and had a pretty troubled childhood. He was the object of a lot of physical and emotional abuse. Um, he was actually abused by one of his siblings, oh. and he threatened to kill himself, which resulted in him being placed in foster care. In 1984, at the age of 14, he took notice of a young girl who was garnering a lot of attention at the time. Her name was Samantha Smith. Oh. Just a couple of years prior, when Samantha was 10 years old, she wrote a letter to Yuri Andropov. He was the newly appointed general secretary of the com- sorry, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And she basically asked him, why do you want to go to war with us? He wrote her back. What? Then it was like, I don't. We want peace. Oh, oh, OK. Yeah. And he invited her to the Soviet Union and she went. She became known as America's youngest ambassador. Uh, wow. Yeah. She went on to become an actress, and she hosted a special on the Disney Channel about the 1984 U.S. presidential election. And she also guest starred on Charles in Charge and oh, okay. played the daughter of Robert Wagner's character on the show Lime Street. Huh. And okay. And so um, Robert John Bardo was this Bardo was like a fan of of hers. Yes, because she okay. was she was all over television at that okay, point. Okay, so at, she was being televised. He he was seeing her on the screen. Okay. Yes. All right. He was watching the whole time. He became obsessed with her oh. and even traveled to Maine to try to find her. She lived in Maine, but he was stopped by police and so he just returned home. So safe to say he has some stalker-like qualities. Yeah. Tragically, Samantha died in a plane crash in 1985 at just 13 years old. Oh, I was I was not ready for that. That yeah. wow. That same year, when he was 15, Robert was admitted to a mental care facility for a month to treat quote emotional problems. He used to write threatening letters to his teachers, and one of his teachers described him as a, quote, time bomb on the verge of exploding. Robert soon turned his attention to Debbie Gibson and traveled to New York City to try and meet her. He was unsuccessful, though, and returned back home to Arizona. Okay, now I'm starting to understand why people didn't write me back. <laughs> he ended up dropping out of high school when he was a freshman and got a job mm. as a janitor at Jack in the Box, which is a fast food chain. Um, I know it's definitely in California. I don't know if it's Yeah, it is. I had never heard of it before. And one night I went out with my friend Kat and she was like, okay, we're going to get Jack in the crack now. And I'm like, what? What are we getting? And then she almost fed me meat. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, she didn't know. I mean, she knew I was a vegetarian, but she didn't realize there was meat in the tacos. Mm. So. In the summer of 1986, promos started airing for the new sitcom My Sister Sam. When Robert saw the commercial on TV, he thought he and Rebecca Schaefer were kindred spirits. And he started writing her letters. I do have a question um, yeah. with Samantha and... Well, I know what Debbie Gibson looks like. And then Rebecca, were there any similarities or they were just all females that were younger or? Was yeah, there, there weren't like physicality. They weren't similar. Okay. They um, just were people that were televised that did big things. Yeah. They were acting or singing or. Um, he saw them on screen and felt some type of way about them. Okay. Okay. So Robert started writing her letters and she wrote him back. In her response to him, she had written that his letter was, quote, the most beautiful she had ever received. And she signed it with love from Rebecca, and she drew a heart and a peace sign on it. When he got that, mm. he was like, this is it. I need to go visit her. He took her response very personally. Very literal. Okay. So he traveled from Tucson to L.A. and showed up at the studio that she worked at with a huge bouquet of roses and a big teddy bear. Jack Egger, who was the chief of security at the studio, said Robert was insistent that he be let in. He kept saying, Rebecca Schaefer, I got to see her. Rebecca, I love her. If I could just see her for a minute. Rebecca Schaefer. Robert 
was denied entry into the studio. Uh, good. So he headed back home to Tucson. Just a month later, he traveled to L.A. again. And this time he showed up at the studio with a knife. Once again, he was denied entry. Uh, yeah. A side note, if they don't let you in holding roses and a teddy bear, what makes you think they're going to let you in holding a knife? When you come back with a knife, like, buddy, it's not happening. Right. When he was denied access that second time, Robert wrote in his diary, quote, I don't lose, period. Oh, okay. That's very narcissistic. Ew. Over the next several months, he ended up being arrested three times on charges of domestic violence and disorderly conduct. Those charges weren't related to Rebecca. I didn't delve into it. Um, suffice to say, he had some run-ins with the law. Meanwhile, as My Sister Sam entered its second season, it saw a huge drop in ratings, and CBS canceled it in 1988. Rebecca was disappointed, obviously, but remember, she had that drive. She wanted to stay in L.A. and keep pursuing work there. She moved out of Pam Dauber's place. She decided it was time she find a place of her own. And at first, she got an apartment up in the Hollywood Hills, but she felt too isolated up there. So she moved into an apartment in the Fairfax district of West Hollywood at 120 North Sweetser. When Rebecca moved out, Pam Dauber gave her one piece of advice that had she followed it, might or might not have changed the outcome, mm. we'll never know. Pam told her, never put your real name on your mailbox, Rebecca. Following the cancellation of My Sister Sam, Rebecca did not have to wait long for her next job. She was cast in the TV movie Out of Time, followed by the film Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. Shortly after, Diane Cannon directed her in a movie called The End of Innocence. And then once that wrapped... Rebecca was off to Egypt for yet another project, a TV movie called Voyage of Terror, The Achille Loro Affair, starring Eva Marie Saint and Burt Lancaster. She was a go-getter and she worked hard. And at such a young age, she was already making an impression on these film legends and gaining more and more attention. I read that she was even in the running. You'll, you'll appreciate this, Kay. She was even in the running for the lead in an upcoming rom-com a little film called Pretty Woman. Oh, woman. She was in the... Oh, I love that. So while Rebecca was out there doing the damn thing, Robert John Bardo was building a shrine to her in his bedroom. He collected pictures, magazines, anything having to do with Rebecca. He continued to write her what he considered to be, quote, love letters. And he watched everything she acted in. In his brain, he thought that they had some kind of relationship. Like, that's just how, that's just where his mind was. It's always like a reminder because I watched um, The Flight Attendant mm -hmm. and at one of the episodes is this one chick is putting all these pictures up on the wall and obviously trying to, you know, basically kill this woman. But you think it's on a show and people actually do this. I mean... Sick people actually really do this. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. You just don't know what people are capable of. Yeah. So when Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills was released in June of 1989, Robert, of course, went to see it. In the film, Rebecca played a character that was a deviation from her girl-next-door persona from mm. My Sister Sam. In Class Struggle, she had an intimate scene in bed with a male actor. Uh, well, he was probably, yeah. When Robert saw this, he was livid. Oh, oh. To him, Rebecca was his quote innocent young girl, and her portrayal of adult of an adult woman in bed with a man made her, and these are his words, quote, one more of the bitches of Hollywood. Oh, wow. I didn't think it was going to take that turn because I actually figured like somebody caught him ejaculating in the movie theater or something like that. I Oh, this no, it's, is, it's oh. much darker than that. Yeah. He described her as a, quote, whore and felt like she needed to be punished. He wrote a letter to his sister in Tennessee stating, quote, I have an obsession with the unattainable and I have to eliminate something that I cannot attain. If I can't have her, nobody will. What did the sister do? Did she take it right to the pl police? I mean, not, not immediately. Nothing. Okay. Robert then went to Jensen's Firearms in Tucson. When he was filling out the required paperwork, one of the questions on the form asked if he'd ever been committed to a mental health facility, 
facility? He, he answered, no, he answered yes. Oh. And therefore was disqualified. Okay. Okay. So when the salesman told him he couldn't buy the gun for that reason, Robert got irate and was like, well, let me fill out another form. Like he was going to change his oh, answer on the second one to try to get the gun. And the salesman was like, no, dude, <laughs> you're an idiot. Kind of feel like th they had more um, filtering then than they do now. Not filtering. What is it called? Um, you know, words are hard. <laughs> when you're monitoring like somebody who's buying, I feel like that guy, I mean, at least he was like, yeah, no, you're not. Oh, well, just wait. Oh, okay. So Robert's Robert's all fired up. And so the salesman gets a coworker to help him with the situation. And the coworker was like, dude, you have to get the fuck out of here. And the two of them escorted Robert out of the store. They then hung Robert's disqualified form on the bulletin board and wrote, do not sell to this individual in all caps. Okay. The very next morning... Robert went back to Jensen's firearms with his brother, Edgar. Edgar then bought the exact same gun that Robert tried to buy the day before. And as soon as they got outside of the shop, he gave it to Robert. Of course. Robert then got on a bus headed to Los Angeles. But he acts fast, huh? Yeah. On July 17th, 1989, he called Rebecca's agent asking for her address of course, they wouldn't give it to him. So he just starts roaming the streets of Hollywood, carrying her picture around with a gun and going up to random people asking if they've seen her. Have you seen this girl? Do you know where she lives? Oh, my God. Yeah, this got him nowhere. So he hired a private detective and he'd gotten that idea from another case, the stabbing of actress Teresa Saldana by and here come three more names. Arthur Richard Jackson. Unbelievable. Who had tracked Saldana down with the help of a PI. So, okay, but I'm a little concerned about PIs. I mean, are they just like, okay, well, I'm making money for this, so I'm just going to do it? Isn't there some kind of like, I don't know, protocol or something where? Well, I mean, one would think, but on the stand, the, in, the private detective that had been hired Set what he was asked, like, did you feel he was going to hurt this person? Did you, was there any reason you felt threatened by this person? You know, that kind of questioning. Right. And the PI was just like, no, no, no. I mean, again, yeah, like they're getting paid. And yep. I, yeah. So the private detective Robert hired didn't have to work too hard. All he did was go to the DMV and ask for Rebecca's address. And they gave it to him on the spot because at the time, that's all anyone had to do to find out where someone lived. Holy shit. The DMV is the hardest place to get in and out of. How the, how, what, what the hell changed? Because honestly, I have spent hours in a line at DMV and can't get anywhere. Still holding on to my papers as I like get rejected and leave. I'm like, okay, well, I waited here four hours and now they're closing and it's a hard stop. So I have to wait until I go back the next day. They just gave the address? That's all anyone had to do. If you had the person's name and a birth date or their name and a driver's license or a name and, and something like that's all it took. And they would give it to you on the spot. And I think you paid like a dollar. Well, damn. Yeah. It also makes me mad that Rebecca's agent didn't call her to say, hey, this hey, guy called yeah. here asking for your ad address. Maybe take extra precaution. Like you would think him calling would raise suspicion. Plus, she so, knew the know. name to begin with because he had written her letters and she, he showed up on to her set twice. Well, I doubt that he gave his name when he called the agent. He was probably just like, oh, hey, right, what's right. Rebecca Schaefer's address? Because <laughs> he's not super bright. Meanwhile, unaware that this obsessed man was on his way to track her down, Rebecca was busy preparing for the role that could really catapult her career. She had been asked to meet with none other than Francis Ford Coppola for the highly coveted role of Michael Corleone's daughter, Mary, in The Godfather Part 3. Oh, my God. Which, oddly, we just talked about Godfather right. and Francis Ford Coppola in the last one. So, yeah, that was just so, like a who, random coincidence. Who was not the co-creator of Hope and Heroes. Yep. Rebecca was really excited about this upcoming audition, obviously. It was huge. 
On July 18th, 1989, Rebecca was home alone waiting on the delivery of the script because they would just like go and they would drop off the script directly to you. Right, right. Around 10 a.m., the buzzer to her apartment rang. And normally she would have just pressed the intercom button to talk to whoever it was at the door. But on this particular day, the intercom wasn't working. Oh, God. Dressed in a black bathrobe, Rebecca walked downstairs and opened the door, expecting to see the delivery person with the Godfather Dropping script. Dropping off the script, yeah. Instead, she was greeted by Robert John Bardo. He had brought with him the letter she had written him, the one where she the was heart like, and the this is the most beautiful letter. Yeah. And he also brought an autographed picture of her that I assume she had sent him in response to his fan mail. Okay. And he said to her, I'm your biggest fan. And she wanted to be polite because that was who she was. Right. But eventually she said she had to go because she had an interview she had to get ready for. And it was her meeting with Francis Ford Coppola that day. So she shook his hand and said, please take care. He left disgruntled and went to a nearby restaurant called Jan's Restaurant. It's not there anymore. Okay. So while he's sitting in this restaurant eating onion rings and cheesecake, which is just gross, but that's what he ordered. He's just stewing because he wasn't satisfied with his interaction. Because again, like he thinks they have some kind of connection. About an hour later, he goes back to Rebecca's apartment building and rings the bell labeled Schaefer once again. Rebecca comes downstairs again. Because the intercom is not working. Jesus. Okay. And sees that it's the same man from before. And at this point, she's starting to get a little annoyed and probably a little wary, too, I would think. So she opens the door and she says, you came to my door again. And he said, I have another letter and a CD for you. And she replied, "Okay, well, hurry up. I don't have much time. Well, Robert was offended by this. He later stated in an interview, quote, I thought that was a very callous thing to say to a fan. So he said to her, I forgot to give you something. And he pulled out the gun from a shopping bag he'd been carrying around since he left Arizona, aimed it directly at her chest, and pulled the trigger. Rebecca screamed, why, why, before collapsing in the doorway. She didn't even make it to the interview. And he, he was, he was just like impulsive, swift, like he was just out for it. I would not call him impulsive. He was very... Okay. Calculated. He was calculated. Okay, I get that. But I'm just saying like he acted on impulses very rapidly. So like once he decided he was going to like gun her down, he did it. It was just, Mm -hmm. but yes, he obviously calculated because if you have a room full of somebody's pictures, you are definitely calculated. Richard Goldman, a neighbor, said he heard two gunshots. So that there's one discrepancy there because- in some reports, it's one. One to the chest. Some it's two. It might have, he might have missed the first time, but I don't think so because it was like point blank range. Um, but anyway, he said he heard two gunshots and two blood curdling screams, and he rushed over to the front door of her building. And this is tough. He found Rebecca still in her black robe, lying on the brick floor of the entryway. Her feet were wedged between the door and its frame. Her eyes were open and her body was twitching. He checked her pulse and there wasn't one. An ambulance was called, which took her to Cedar sinai Medical Center, and it was about another half hour before she passed. Rebecca Schaefer was killed at the age of just 21 years old, shot by 19-year-old Robert John Bardo. He was only 19? Yep. Oh, that's really tragic. And... When he, he fled? He fled, yep. Okay, because by the time that the guy came over and, you know, was with with Rebecca, yep. there, he was gone then. But tons of people saw him. This was broad daylight, and he was wearing a yellow polo shirt, which was pretty oh, okay. um, noticeable, for right. lack of a better word. So he fled. He threw the polo shirt, um, like, up on a roof of a building, along with a book that we'll talk about later. But, again, many people saw him. Robert immediately went back to Tucson and was found the very next day, on July 19th, the day after the murder, running around through traffic on the freeway trying to get hit. Oh. Yeah. He was trying to commit suicide or trying to get hit. 
Several drivers called 911 to report him. And when the cops showed up, he immediately confessed to killing Rebecca. Mm-hmm. He had a picture of her in his pocket when he was arrested. And when the Tucson police contacted the police in L.A., they said they had already received a tip from a woman in Tennessee. As soon as Robert's sister had heard about the murder, she contacted police in L.A. and shared the letter with him that he had written her. Oh, God. Robert was extradited. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like (sighs) if I just feel like there are so many moments where it's like this could have been prevented completely. Just so many steps along the way. Robert was extradited to California where he was California, excuse me, where he was tried and convicted by prosecutor Marsha Clark. Oh, Robert had struck a deal that if he waived his right to a jury trial, the prosecution would not seek the death penalty. Dr. Park Elliott Dietz, a psychiatrist that interviewed Robert while he awaited trial, testified that he believed Robert had been schizophrenic since childhood, but did not find him to be legally insane. Robert also mentioned to Dr. Dietz that he had been partially inspired by the song Exit by the band U2. Here's the thing. A song is not responsible for you murdering someone. someone. Let's be clear. That's like when people talk about like, what what is it? Um, Video games? Yeah, video games and, and or like when they have the, oh my gosh, I'm, the bandwidth is low. Um, Colts, sorry, the Colts and how, you know, something on the internet told me I needed to do this or, you know. Oh, yeah. The song was played in court and Robert was seen like getting pumped up by it. He started banging his knees. He was mouthing along to the lyrics. And when all of that information came out, U2 didn't perform that song again for almost 30 years. I was going to ask if they had any kind of spoken word about it, if they had addressed it, I guess. I don't know if they made a statement. I just know that they would not perform they it. Never, they didn't play it for 30 years. In an attempt to get a lesser sentence, Robert's attorney tried to argue that he was mentally ill and didn't have the capacity to plan his crime. Therefore, it couldn't have been premeditated. His attorney stated, Robert is a victim of parental neglect and a mental health system which failed to provide the treatment he needed. Here's the thing. Yes, he did have some mental illness and he did suffer abuse as a, chi- as a child. That does not excuse the act of murder. As our ladies from Morbid always say, feel bad for the child, not the adult. Mm. He knew exactly what he was doing. He tried to buy a gun, was denied, got his brother to buy it for him, told his sister if he couldn't have Rebecca, no one could, traveled to LA with the gun, hired a private detective, tracked her down, rang her doorbell, and shot her in the chest. There are so many things where hopefully in our world today, but maybe not because these things are still continuing as we know. But so many things where I feel like red flag, red flag. Oh, here's another one. Like, yeah, it's- yeah. If that doesn't spell premeditation, I don't know what does. Right. It also came out. So I mentioned there was a book that he flung up on the roof of a oh, building yeah. right. along with his shirt. It was a copy of The Catcher in the Rye. Holden Caulfield. Which Mark David Chapman, three names, also had on him when he killed John Lennon. Oh. Robert insisted that this was just a coincidence, but later in an interview, Mark David Chapman said he had received letters from Robert before Rebecca's murder in which Robert inquired about life in prison. Wait, what? Yeah. So Robert was writing Mark David Chapman while he was behind bars, asking him about life in prison. And he also carried a copy of The Catcher in the Rye. What's this thing with like J.D. Salinger's book? I don't get it. Like, I didn't. Do they say anything more about that? Or did you just no. didn't go deeper into that? Okay. And I didn't mention this earlier, but when he traveled to New York to try to find Debbie Gibson, he went to the place where Mark David Chapman shot John Lennon. So, th- so there was some sort of idol idolization, um, or some kind of like I want to emulate this person. Absolutely. I mean, he he says there wasn't, but uh, like, yeah, there was. There was that coincidence, and then there was, um, you know, the idea of getting the private detective from another case. Right. Right. So yeah, 
Uh, thankfully, the judge agreed with the prosecution, and on October 29th of 1991, Robert John Bardo was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In one article I read, it stated that during the trial, the employees from Jensen's Firearms in Tucson contacted Marsha Clark's office to say that Robert's brother, Edgar, was also at fault. Number one, for buying the gun for Robert, which is considered a straw man purchase and is a violation of federal law. That's where you buy it to give to another person. And two, for being an accessory to first degree murder. Yeah. However, nothing ever came of this and Edgar was never charged. Even if the brother didn't think or know that his his brother was going to murder someone, he was still an accomplice to purchasing that after he had gotten denied the day before. Right. I mean, he still committed a crime by making a straw man purchase because it was against federal law. Right. Rebecca's agent, Jonathan Howard, said she didn't have an enemy in the world. She was one of the nicest people I've ever known. Sincere, nicest, nice and kind. When interviewed years later, that same agent said, I remember the last time I spoke to Rebecca. It was about the Godfather 3 audition, how important it was, how excited she was. That day. And you don't think whenever you talk to somebody that it's going to be the last time. You know, I just keep thinking about our parents as their only child. And yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. And it it feels like it's something that could be so almost preventable, but obviously right. not, but it could be. I mean, it's a parent's biggest fear. Yeah. And, and especially like after all that she had already done. Yeah. At such a young age and like all of her travels and like now her career is really taking off. It Yeah. It also seems really sad that she just didn't get to, to go to that audition. I mean, I know that sounds so like trivial for this circumstance, but it was something obviously that she was looking forward to and that she was preparing and, and just. I mean, yeah, probably yeah. like the biggest meeting she'd had, right. uh, you know, in her career at that point. <sighs> Brad Silberling was Rebecca's boyfriend at the time of her murder. They met on a blind date in 1987. He was devastated, obviously. Um, He waited with Rebecca's parents at the hospital while they identified her body. Brad said he couldn't date again for two years after losing Rebecca, but he did eventually meet and later marry actress Amy Brenneman. He maintained a relationship with Rebecca's parents, and they attended his wedding to Amy. Rebecca's dad recalled the last time he spoke with her, she had called him a day or two before her Godfather audition. And he said, why don't you give me a ring afterwards and tell me how it went? And she said, well, I'll do that. I love you. And he said, I love you. (sighs) Rebecca's mom, Dana, went on to write a one-woman show called Midair, Elegy for a Daughter, about the loss of her only child. And Brad, the boyfriend, wrote and directed the 2002 film Moonlight Mile, which is inspired by the loss of Rebecca and his relationship with her parents. Oh, how incredible to have like these tributes, you know, to yeah. to someone that, that comes years past. Like, Yeah. Um, additionally, there's an episode of Law and Order called Starstruck, which is partially based on this case. Okay. And when E! True Hollywood Story debuted in 1996... Their very first episode was, was on Rebecca Schaefer. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. That was something that I just thought was really interesting when I read that. Especially because it happened, what, like seven years before that? Yeah. There was some good that came out of all of this. Rebecca's murder provoked the governor of California to sign a law prohibiting the DMV from releasing addresses. Ah, for the $1. California received 16 million address inquiries in 1988. Just like think about that for a second. 16 million people trying to find out where someone else lived. My eyes are huge right now and it just makes me feel creeped out. One point that someone brought up was, you know, if you were driving in your car and you weren't going fast enough for someone or there was, you know, some kind of road rage situation. All the person that was mad had to do was write down your license plate, wow. go to the DMV and say, where does this person live? And they would tell you. Crazy. 
Congress passed the Driver's Privacy Protection Act in 1994, which required all states to do the same. The Los Angeles Police Department created the first ever threat management team, which focused specifically on stalking cases. In 1990, California became the first state to pass the anti-stalking law, which went into effect January 1st, 1991. Before Rebecca's murder, stalking wasn't even classified as a crime. And I feel like I hear more about stalking cases more back in the day, like maybe 70s and 80s and whatnot. Whereas now, I mean, now we've got other issues, but I don't hear about stalking as much. And maybe it's just there's so much else out there going on and you don't pick up on those cases. But yeah, because I do think it's still... Exist. Yeah, of course. Of course. Also, with the way we get information now, it's just like, you know, you open your phone and you can find a story for anything and everything. Right. Eventually, the rest of the country passed the anti-stalking law as well. Rebecca's parents dedicated themselves to the fight for stricter gun laws. In 1990, her mother, Dana, helped launch the lobbying group Oregonians Against Gun Violence. And she went to Washington, D.C. to help lobby for the passage of the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act. Her dad said, quote, the gun issue lets us focus our anger. There's so little we can do about Rebecca's death. We feel good about doing this. It's the only public way to say what happened to Rebecca isn't all right. The cast of My Sister Sam held a memorial at the studio and also filmed a PSA about gun violence. Pam Dauber said in an interview, Gun control is fairly controversial, though all we're saying to people is to prevent handgun violence. Now, how can you argue with that? Which I just thought was... It's true. Like, how can you argue? How is a gun more important than somebody's life? (laughs) Rabbi Emmanuel Rose of Portland's Temple Beth Israel said, We are angered. Angry at a stranger, angry at a nation, and revolving political leaders who refuse to eliminate the source of agony among so many Americans. That was in 1989. It's still prevalent today. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that Rebecca loved to write poetry. The night before her funeral, Brad and her best friend Barbara stayed up all night typing up her poems and binding them with pastel ribbons and they gave one to every one of the 200 mourners. So I want to end this with a couple of her poems. The first one goes, I'm glad to be a woman. I feel a little superhuman. I get to exist and have mystery I can hold in the palm of my hand. Diamond marbles and steel hearts. I've learned to smile, to open and let see. But the best thing of all is watching the others and their mystery. I loved that one. That's great. Did she, um, is that one of the ones she did when she was younger, still living in Oregon? That one isn't dated, but this next one is. And it's the last one I'll read. She wrote this the month of her death. I do it for me. I have the right to say no. I live for now. Life is not a movie. Wow. And that is our episode on Rebecca Schaefer. It's a tough one. And it is. It is. And when like when I post the pictures, like you're just gonna see her you can see her spirit through like exuding the through. photo. Yes. I think that I think what's so sad too is the the potential and the length of life she could have had. Oh, left. absolutely. She was I so mean, young. She would have had a huge, huge career. And she was just a good person. Like, you just think about all the good she could have done in the world. It's really tragic. And when you, like, I mean, I think about what I was doing when I was a teenager. I was not, you know, I was not, I did not have the wherewithal to, like, plan out my career and move on my own. And yeah, I go to New York and Japan and, right. And she was like, I know what I want and I'm, I know how I can get it. And here I go. So... Yeah, it was um, it was a tough one to research, but I, I have been wanting to cover that one because her case is referred to a lot because of the laws that came from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew the name yeah. for sure. I guess I didn't know what she looked like. And I I now remember there's a, there was a show called My Sister Sam, mm-hmm. um, but I, I know I haven't ever seen it. Well, you know me. I've barely seen anything. <laughs> That name, I, I, I've known it for a long time. I remember when my dad talked about this, honestly. And so, like, 
it's out there. The name is out there. Even if I didn't really know the true story, I definitely knew that there was somebody who murdered her. Right. And, you know, I knew she was an actress. So even even being kind of removed from knowing all of the, the stuff and what happened, I still know her name. And I think that's huge. It's like getting the names out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, I don't know that you liked that is the right sentiment, but, um, you know, hopefully you learned something from it. And number like number one, I I don't answer the door ever. Like, yeah, I don't. Um, I don't care who it is. I don't answer the door. So don't ring my doorbell. <laughs> but anyway, let us know your thoughts. You can let us know in the comments. Um, let us know on Instagram. You can follow us. Any of the social media. Yes. Follow us at Horrorwood Podcast or Twitter at Horrorwood Pod. I'm not going to lie. I have not posted a single thing on Twitter. It, it, like it automatically posts the episode to Twitter. Oh, okay. But I haven't, you know. I'm not. I'm not good with social media, guys. To this day, I she's. I mean, I am at least good with a couple platforms, but to this day, I don't. I wouldn't even know how to log on to Twitter and do a tweet. I I also started a TikTok for us, but and I was like really good about it for like three days. Um, but I'm gonna get back onto it. I want to like. I want to be able to do that stuff for you guys and um, be able to interact with you more. And maybe we'll do a live sometime. That could be super fun. We absolutely will. We 100. We should plan what what subject we want for that. Okay. You can also send us your own uh, story, and it doesn't have to be celebrity related. It can be, but obviously it doesn't have to be. Um, we just want to hear from you. Just make sure there's a lot of horror in it. Just like that. Um, so email it to us at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to rate, review, subscribe, do all the things. Feedback. We love you for it. Critiques. Yeah, we love it. Stay safe out there, everybody. And you know what? If anybody knows how to work on speech, that just, you know, give me a holla. <laughs> I'm just putting my head in my hands right now. <laughs> so I'm just like, what? Who is this person that I'm working with here? <laughs> You know what? Stay a misfit, misfits. Yep. <laughs> what she said. I'm going to stop this recording.